Hello and welcome to this FT Advisor in Focus podcast about a retail distribution review 10 years on and whether it has achieved the aims it was designed to achieve. The RDR was implemented on the 31st of December 2012, introducing a raft of measures to make the advice market more transparent and professional in order to inspire consumer confidence and trust. But while undoubtedly the level of qualifications among advisors is higher now than it was 10 years ago, We've also had a fair amount of scandals, not least the British Steel Pension Transfer Saga, which undermined confidence in the industry. So, has the RDR achieved its aims? With me here to discuss this today are Scott Dacres, Business Development Director at Square Mile, and Martin Coyle, Head of UK Business Development at Morningstar. Hello both. Hi, Carmen. Morning, Carmen. Martin, let's start with you. How do you rate the RDR project overall? It's a very, very large question to start with. I, I would, if on a scale of one to 10, my personal opinion would be that it would be somewhere in the vicinity of uh, a seven. I think it's gone an extremely long way to building uh, consumer confidence. I think it's gone an extremely long way in terms of advisors changing their business models and how they deal with clients. Uh, I think it's also gone a long way to how providers position their services and their products for consumers. So I, I think it's um, I think it's gone a long way. But as you see, there's further regulation that's still coming out. And, and I think that that will be never ending. I think we have to continue to reinvent ourselves and, um, and the advice industry. And I, I just think it's been, I think it's been successful, but it's not without its controversy. Scott, how would you sum up how the RDR project has gone? I think it's been a real positive for the industry. Um, We know that it was well telegraphed before implementation. It certainly created a lot of concern. But 10 years on, it's really aligned the client and advisor interest. So I think it's been a good thing. It's moved us from a more transactional model to certainly more service-led. And again, that's got to be a benefit for the end consumer. So no, I agree. there There is still work to be done, but it was a good starting point. Okay, well, let's look at a few of the things that the RDR was designed to achieve and and whether it indeed has achieved those aims. Martin, the first thing, we've got greater professionalism among advisors. I guess almost everybody would agree that this has been achieved. What do you think? Uh, I definitely think, I wouldn't say amongst all advisors, but I would say by the overwhelming majority. And I I think the sort of implementation of um, continuous uh, professional development is um, really important. I think the um, educational requirements that have been placed on advisors has been extremely um, helpful in going a long way to a, a more professional occupation, if you like. I also think the professionalism amongst advisors is also complemented by the advent of power planning over the last 10 to 15 years, which has really helped provide better advice processes behind advisors who, let's face it, a lot of advisors in the past actually came out of um, life offices, banks. Um, They might have been um, on the insurance side of the market. They've had to become business owners, many of them in the IFA space, and they've been on a continuous path towards professionalism. And the industry bodies have really supported that. You know, you look at the CII and the um, PFS, I should say, um, that have been uh, very, very uh, strong in helping support that, including the IFP. So I think, you know, definitely there's been a a much, uh, it's been much better in terms of uh, increasing professionalism over the years. When you look at advice as a profession, I guess 
I guess the aim was to maybe bring it up to or bring it where um, things like the law profession or the accountancy profession is. Like if you look at it from a university perspective, a student perspective, it's kind of hard to study advice, whereas law degrees are, you know, prevalent. So mm. what do you think about that, Scott? What, what do you think about the issue of professionalism and what has been achieved? Well, I, I have to agree with Martin. I think it has it, definitely improved the professionalism. But I think we've also seen way more young people joining our industry. They're more curious about financial services, and that's a good thing. So, yes, there are degrees and there are people doing, you know, financial services as, as a profession now. So I think from our point of view, it's definitely working. We're, we're moving the industry forward, and we're definitely seeing much more of the the professional element come through of the exams and the qualifications, which is all to the good. And can I just say that uh, we've gone one further if you look at the Australian market and that you have to be degree qualified to actually um, become a financial advisor these days. They've, they've probably gone a, a step further. It's not necessarily uh, vocational in, in, in what you actually studied to do it, but they do have degrees in financial planning. Uh, available, and I, I do see that something in 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 that of that ilk might happen here in future. Not necessarily mandated degrees, but a lot more young people, like Scott said, coming in, into the industry, perhaps studying for financial planning in particular. Scott, do you think more needs to be done? I don't think so. I think, as Martin says, it's a progression. I think you're seeing more young people come through. So as the as the older ones among us start start to look to the hills and look to retire, that younger element will come through. And I think the professionalism will be driven by the fact that they will be coming through. They will have to be more qualified, and therefore that that degree will pick up. So I think it takes time. It's a snowball effect. You know, we're ten years on, and we've seen the professionalism increase. Ten years from today, I think you'll see everybody being qualified who comes into financial services. So I, I'm with Martin. I think. There's, it's it's a journey and we're well on that journey. And what do you think, Scott, about the RDR's aim to inspire consumer confidence and trust and enhance the industry's reputation? We've had quite a few scandals that have probably dented advisors' reputation. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate, but I think within any industry, there will always be those one or two who bend or break the rules. And I don't think we can avoid that, unfortunately. But I think if you look at where we are in terms of financial services today, around 10% of the UK population are paying for advice. That's got to be a step forward than we had before. So you've got people who are happy to pay for that advice. We do need to do more. But there will always be that that contingent that are going to push the boundaries of, of what's right and, and proper to do. So I don't think we can ever get rid of them um, as much as we would love to. But I, I, I do think we've improved. Do you think, Martin, consumer confidence and trust has been raised by the RDR? Absolutely. I, th I think, I think it, it, the, it's hard to measure. It, it's something that you know, we've studied in, in terms of you know, what, how do you measure, how do you measure, you know, trust? You know, do you measure it by um, clients who, you know, believe that they're willing to refer to their financial advisor because they trust the advice that they've been given, so they're willing to refer friends, family and and others? And, and what we've seen over the last 10 years is many advisors' businesses that have been built on the back of referrals. And that, to me, is, it says that, many, many advisors are doing the right thing there and that they are inspiring confidence and trust because they're 
they, they, they're continuing not to actually have to prospect to a large degree. And they get, they're getting um, referrals from existing clients who are um, satisfied, confident in the advice that they receive and, and the services that their advisor delivers. I'd, I'd agree with that, Martin, and I think it goes a step further as well. I think when you look at, and I'm sure we'll come on to consumer duty, but when you look at what the FC are saying about consumer duty, they're pointing the finger at the advice industry and going, this is the benchmark. This is what we want to see for everybody coming forward. We know that UK financial services is, is a little mistrusted, but that's a broad brush of a, you know, mm. a funeral plans, pet insurance, credit cards, a whole raft of things. But when you distill it down, the FCA have said, this is what the model should be. It's what the advice model is. So that's got to be a, a positive, and that's partly driven by RDR and partly driven by the professionalism coming through the people in the industry. Mm-hmm. Scott is right on there because that's what I, I was thinking about. The fact that the consumer duty is actually going to go across a broad uh, retail market should be nothing but welcomed by the financial advisor community because I think some uh, where where any trust in financial services ha- has um, been diminished it has often been by the on the periphery or the unreg- unregulated. So by bringing more and more... Um, parts of the retail financial uh, market into consumer duty, um, I, I just think is a, is a good thing. Now, we all know that um, charging has changed um, quite dramatically or been changed quite dramatically by the RDR with the um, removal of commission charging. Now, this was designed to remove provider bias and conflict of interest. Is it an advisor's market now or is it still a provider's market, Martin? I would say it is an advisor's market, not a provider's market. I think providers are under immense pressure. Um, I think they have very large, a lot of the big ones are very large scale businesses. I think you're seeing a lot of new uh, businesses in in various parts of the financial advice chain coming into the marketplace. And and that's putting pressure on the, the, the large providers. I think advisors have a lot more control over their charging, you know, what are they paying for platform services? What are they paying for risk profile tools? What are they paying for research? What are they paying for, um, what are they charging clients in terms of their proposition to clients? It was dictated to them probably 10, 15 years ago. Today, they've got control. And I think that's um, that's been a, a monumental shift in, in the way, uh, in removing bias really. Okay, what what do you think, Scott? Obviously, we've got we've got pressure from the market as well in terms of the kind of amount that advisors can 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 charge is falling and falling. It is, but I think that's consummate with the service that they're providing. So again, it comes back down to you know is the client happy with the service and and the the, the payment of that. But I agree with Martin. I think if you go back and look at where where we shifted to, we have shifted this to be an advisor client marketplace. The providers historically were able to push their products, you know, through platforms. They launched a new product, they could push it onto a platform, pushing the sales through. The platforms are now driven by the requirements of the advisor, not by the requirements of the provider. And that's got to be a positive at the end of the day for the client. So I think the advisor charging is a very personal thing to the client and and advisor relationship. And I think clients are happy to pay for the service that they get as long as they get that service. 
Um, that again is you know part of the reason for consumer duty is maybe to align those a little bit more than they have been. But I think for for all the advisors in the marketplace who are the highly qualified ones, they do have much more emphasis on the client advisor relationship. The client's already at the heart of everything that they do. Mm -hmm. So do you think that provider bias and conflict of interest has has been successfully eradicated? I think to a large degree it has, yes. I mean, there, there will always be companies that provide great service that there may be a, a, a closer allegiance to because of the service that they provide to the advisor. But in terms of being driven by monetary reward, I'm not sure that exists anymore. You know, at the end of the day, it's down to the advisor to charge the client for the, you know, for the service that they're being provided, not down to the provider to provide a, a commission payment. So I do think it has removed a lot of that bias. Now, speaking of charges, the RDR also set out to increase understanding, consumer understanding of charges by making them simpler and more transparent. Now, is that something that you think has been achieved or are, conf are conf consumers still confused about what um, charges mean and what advisors are charging, Martin? Well, we've been broadly positive about all the uh, the last 10 years of RDR, but this is probably an area which I think we as an industry still have some way to go in terms of um, whilst <coughs> transparency is a good thing, doesn't necessarily mean that the clients unaided have a really good understanding of the, of the charges that are laid out before them, be it custody, be it um, fund charges, be it, it doesn't matter if, if you're not in the industry and you're a client, you really do need an advisor to spend the time to actually help you understand what all those charges mean. When it was, this is all 1%, there were some benefits to that, I must admit. But now that it's broken down, the whole chain's broken down, that is a lot for um, the retail investor who's perhaps not uh, investment savvy to actually take in and understand, not to mention the amount of um, documentation that's associated with advisors providing advice and laying out those charges for clients. So it is an, it's, it's an awful lot of reading and an awful lot of, uh, for, for retail clients to understand. So... I don't know what the answer is, but there is an extraordinary amount of disclosure that still happens and a lot of paperwork. And I, I still think that transparency is a wonderful thing. I think they're um, often clearly laid out, but it's just like looking at, you know, a mobile phone contract and reading the fine print and the, in, in, you know, in the three pages following what you've signed. I think it's, um, I think there's still a way to go in helping uh, advisors get their head around the charges. Mm -hmm. uh, not advisors, clients, I clients. should say. Of course. Advisors get them, don't worry. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I have to agree with Martin on that one. I think we've, we've gone a long way on the transparency, but it, it is still a tough subject, even for a provider to sit down and try and, and try and work out exactly where all their costs are coming from and put that in a document that somebody understands. It's incredibly tough. You don't buy a car, and when you buy the car, you get all the components in there and tell you how much each component costs to put the car together. I, I do agree with Martin. You know, It did make a lot of sense when it was just a one-encompassing charge, and that was it. But we do have to try and explain it. And I agree, the advisors do understand the charging structures, but you do need a, a, a good understanding of mathematics sometimes to understand where all the charges come from and how they all hang together. And is this something, Martin, that, uh, that the Australian market is managing to do better? I, would, uh, I wouldn't say. I think this is probably a problem that's actually um, travelled far and wide in the industry. I, I think it's um, 
financial services can be made incredibly complex. And sometimes you, you have to wonder whether it's who's done that. Is it the regulator or is it the providers? Um, I certainly wouldn't say it's the advisors. So, you know, we have to look at why why charges are the way they are and, and, and how how the chain has come about. I think what you're starting to see is groups of providers that actually start to provide more parts of the chain and 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 that can actually sort of help in in sort of explaining the the pricing journey and how things come together and then there could also perhaps be some um adv- advantages to that i'm not particularly talking about vertical integration here but that is an example i guess in in terms of how controlling more parts of of the chain can actually lower should lower costs to the consumer. And what do you think, Scott? Do you have any um, ideas or suggestions for how this this problem of charging and transparency can be solved? Yeah, that's the $64 million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, I think, again, I, I agree with Martin. We've, we've made good strides on this. It's very difficult to try and break everything down to the nth degree, but it's got to come back down to, is the client paying a fair cost for what, what the result is? And it's got to be judged on the results. Um, you know, are you happy to pay for the service that's being offered? Is it delivering what you want? In which case, the cost is irrelevant. It comes back down to, you know, the, is the client content with what they're getting? Now, RDR, believe it or not, um, was also designed to make advice available to a wider range of consumers. I think we can all agree that that has not happened, uh, Martin. Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, yeah, this is this is another one that I would have to say um, it's probably failed to do. And I just think that due, due to the the complete shift in advisors' businesses, how many clients could they provide holistic, sound financial advice to? has been limited by RDR. And what that has meant is that it has to be selective about what clients they engage with, um, especially clients that approach them from a um, transactional point of view where the client perhaps isn't willing to actually share um, all their financial affairs to enable the advisor to do a, a, a an appropriate job. So, you know, there, there's um, many clients have probably been rejected by advisors and had to um, either seek help and support elsewhere. But you've seen a huge increase in the likes of um, the D2C platforms over the years where, where clients have gone to actually place their sort of transaction or whether they actually want to have that um, ownership or not, I'm not sure. But the um, yeah, certainly we have a, a massive advice gap. I think it's um, going to be incredibly difficult to close There was a, a time over the last 10 years where you thought, well, this is where the banks might be able to uh, support, but they've had their own issues since 2008 rather than actually concentrate on uh, retail financial services. And that's le- left a, a, a very, very wide uh, advice gap that's going to be very difficult. And I know there's, there, there's some steps being made to try and address that, but it is, it is, it, there's a gulf Yeah, I, I can't disagree. I, I think that it's also being compounded. If you look at pension freedoms with George Osborne, that, that created an even wider gap because, yeah, again, absolutely. lots of smaller pension funds were not able to get advice when they actually need drawdown. So we have, unfortunately, moved the problem on and created a slightly wider gap. Consumer duty probably pushes that gap a little bit more again, purely and simply because the amount of regulation that an advisor has to take on board, the amount of paperwork, 
pushes their average case size up in terms of who they can afford to take on. So it's a bit of a sad one, but I do agree that the FC are looking at this. Obviously, their consultation paper that came out in November in regards to simplifying advice isn't going a long way to help. You're absolutely right. The banks were a natural home for this, but yeah, they, they've had their own challenges. But equally, in their own challenges, they've then become very aware of the regulations that sit there as well. And again, they don't want to fall foul of any, any regulation. So again, it constrains the advice that they are a natural home for. So we do need to do something. And I'm hoping that the paper and the consultation that's out that started in November will allow us to get to that group that requires advice. Because there is a lot of clients in the UK who have reasonable sums of money, but maybe can't afford to pay for advice. And that needs to be addressed. Do you think, uh, Martin, that simplified advice could be the answer? Yes, but um, I think like what Scott was probably alluding to there is that the the sums have to increase. Um, you, you can't be doing it on small amounts. It's going to have to get somewhere between zero and what a typical IFA client um, would, would, would have because I, I don't think um, – I, I think that that gap is – quite large and I do think that it needs to be needs to be wider uh, I just think the it's got to make it easy for clients there's another element though I think I think things like AI might actually come to start to address some of that I mean that that is comes with its own world of hurt in terms of regulation probably and and how that would come about but uh, I think with there's a lot of systems these days that might be able to um, go a long way to providing a basic level of advice to clients. I'm not saying AI is replacing financial advisors tomorrow because there's a lot that they do both uh, from a behavioural perspective with clients, but uh, I do think um, things like AI might be able to fill the gap there. Now, just finally, we've had since the RDR a raft of other industry-wide, outside of um, advice financial services industry-wide regulations, um, such as the M uh, SMCR, MIFID, etc. Now, some of those, and those two in particular, look to be scrapped now. <clears throat> At the same time, the consumer duty um, is being introduced. How would a regulatory landscape change for advisors and their clients in the coming years, Martin? <laughs> Not one to forecast, but um, there'll be there'll be certainly certainly more changes coming up. I guess the focus right now is on that consumer duty that that's coming in and and people making sense of what that what that means for people. And I think we did it we did a study um, of us financial advisors um, recently. And what was critical to successful uh, advisors in the advice market was advisors who put uh, their clients' best interest first. That was a top rated uh, attribute by investors. Second was their knowledge. And third was that goals matter. So, you know, both understanding a client's goals and ha helping them make progress towards their goals. The reason I say that last bit is that that is purely focused on our outcomes. And consumer duty, to for me, feels like it is the extension of RDR in terms of, I think RDR went a long way towards um, greater professionalism, advisors having more robust uh, business models, advice processes, processes, but now it's, and what is that delivered? And I do think that the focus of regulation in future will be, you are providing advice, you are charging X, the outcome is Y. Have you gone a long way to delivering those outcomes? And I think that's, that's where the focus, for me, I see in terms of um, consumer duty, 
And I, I see that that's a natural extension of uh, the last 10 years of RDR. What do you think, Scott? Again, I, I can't disagree. I think RDR started us on the journey. Good advice firms always put the customer at the heart of everything they did. And as Martin says, when you look at that, that's the most important thing. It's delivering on the outcomes or the requirements for that, that customer. And I think the good advice firms have always done that. They'll always continue to do that. But what's interesting is when you look at some of the press articles and some of the coverage that's going on, particularly some of the acquisitions, um, it's interesting to read what, what they think is important. Um, it's it's usually shareholder value or in, increasing their wealth or increasing the assets under management. Sometimes they don't refer to the client. And I think we have to be clear, it is always about the client. Any changes that come in now, I think, will just be enhancements to what we're, what we're discussing in terms of the, the consumer outcomes. That's got to be key to this. At the end of the day, the consumer seeks advice because they want something. They either want to retire with money, they want to be able to educate their children, they want to be able to go on a holiday, or they simply want to do house renovations. That requires a goal. And we've got to be clear that the good advice firms have always delivered on that, trying to help them achieve those goals. So anything that we change in the future will be about refining that that aim of, of achieving the client goals. And do you think that the combination of the Edinburgh reforms and the consumer duty will make this market a better functioning market and perhaps one that's easier to regulate? I think our, our market's improved anyway. I think with RDR, as we said, we moved from a transactional to a service model and we moved to more, co more consumer focus. That was always a positive. Um, so I'm not sure that we, we change too much more with, with more regulation coming in. Um, you know, from my point of view, it's, it's, it is about, you know, good, sound and appropriate financial advice, which a lot of our industry have already and always provided. It's the rest of UK financial services catching up to that industry standard that mm -hmm. we've been delivering on. And that seems like a good place to end. Thank you very much both for coming in and talking to me today. It was a really good discussion, so thank you. And thank you to our listeners for listening. Tune in again next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.